Good morning. Good morning. Welcome you to the worship services. We don't want uh, something to get lost this week that might get lost in the craziness that it is our world and our society right now. Um, coming up Wednesday is Veterans Day. And uh, just a reminder for all of us, and I thank you for those of you who have served and given us the right to um, debate and the right to express our thoughts and ideas about how life should be versus sometimes how it is in our country and our right to vote. And this morning, it's not lost on us our right to assemble to worship. So thank you if you are a veteran who has uh, put yourself out there for our benefit. We appreciate it. So, like, is it over? Or is it just the beginning? Is it the end of a political season or just the beginning of a new political season? Is it a season of victory? Or a season of defeat? Or a season of waiting? Right? And the answer, of course, to all of those is yes and no. Just depending on what um, political stand you might have. Politics creates winners and losers. It creates us and them. Red and blue. Division and turmoil. Participants and onlookers. Satisfaction and heartache. Hope and doom. And while I would like for each of us to engage in our responsibility as citizens of this nation, God would be pleased if we did so in a way that would honor Him and shows the world that the Spirit of God living inside of us actually makes a difference in how we live. That as a result of God's Spirit being inside of us and God's Word being what we follow with our hearts and minds, that it would mean that we as his people would experience God's peace. That we would trust him to bring about our good. That we would, as the scriptures say, submit ourselves to human authority and honor those who lead us. Because we believe that God is still on his throne. I hope we all recognize that everything that has happened, that none of it comes as a surprise to God. Because He knows it all. Now we purpose that this series would go longer than Election Day. Right? We said that our behavior would be important before the election, and during the election, and after the election. And we've been nestled in Philippians chapter 2, just unfolding one by one these things Paul tells us about how we should relate to one another. But you remember in chapter 1, verse 27, he gave us kind of the, the overarching or the umbrella verse for this whole series when he says in 127, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now many of us made a commitment to do that. 
Right? I love how some of you actually posted that commitment online to your Facebook page. Right? Now, you're, that's being serious about accountability there. I love watching that. Right? And I watched um, through Tuesday evening and into Wednesday morning, hoping just to discover, like of those 117 write-in names on ballots that were cast in Miami County, Maybe just to find out how many of them were actually cast for Drew Dot. <laughs> I don't know that we're going to know. Uh, I would love to know. I don't think anyone has sent Drew any pictures of that. But, uh, but it certainly was at least a lighter distraction <laughs> to all the thoughts and feelings going on. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me. You got your Bible with you, maybe your Bible app on your phone. Um, there's a Bible as a chair in front of you. Paul is writing this church in Philippi about how they are to interact with one another. In part, because the world around them is watching them. Right? Now thus far, we've talked about the unity and the humility that Paul is calling for in the church and in their relationship. And now today we begin to go into one of the most classic passages in the whole New Testament. We're about to see the next politically incorrect attitude of a follower of Jesus. Now by politically correct, incorrect, I mean like everyone is, is said to be politically correct if they just kind of conform and fold into whatever the general direction of society is and what people say, this is how you should act. But we know that oftentimes, and we have seen demonstrated certainly for months now, that that, that behavior is not honoring to God. It's not conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so we've talked about being politically correct, meaning stepping out of that lane into a different lane that would bring honor to God, bring glory to God by how we live. Now, today we're going to talk about another characteristic that is it, it's just it's missing in our society in general. And amongst the leaders of our nation in specific. And yet it's born out of the example of Jesus himself. And that is the characteristic of sacrificial service. Look down and begin with me in verse 5 of Philippians 2. Paul says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now let's unfold these verses and talk about how Jesus models for us serving other people. And Paul explains that it starts with attitude. Now that's not new news to us. We know attitude is a big deal. We've seen a lot of attitude in our country for the last few months. But the final and strongest appeal for the unity that is 
described in verses 1 and 2, Paul's going to say, well, that comes through Jesus. In verse 2, we're told to be like-minded. In verse 5, we're told that we're to have the mind or the attitude of Jesus. That, yes, be like-minded, but here's what that looks like. Okay? The greatest example of humility that is described in verses 3 and 4 comes through the life of Jesus. According to verse 6, who did not, that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And there in verse 8, we see that Jesus profoundly humbled himself in his death. So when we think about these verses in the context, we realize that Paul is talking about how Christians relate to each other, okay? and that outsiders who are watching and while an individual's attitude is really important, Paul is talking about attitude in the context of relationships. So I would think that probably the NIV has the best translation there, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have you ever known someone who needed a transplant? Have you ever walked close enough to know, like, with them? The, the desperation and a sense of how all of life depends on getting that transplant and that transplant being accepted by the body. Well, Paul here is talking about a mind transplant. And he's talking about an attitude replacement that is just as desperate for us if we are going to live lives that reflect Jesus as our Lord. And if we're going to impact the world around us in any meaningful way whatsoever. Now the fruit of this attitude is going to be unfolded in the text for us as we go along. What life looks like when we live with the same mindset of Jesus. But let me just say up front, you cannot assume the mindset of Jesus as his followers without it being a conscious and a decisive choice. If you think, well, I've given Jesus my life, therefore I'm going to reflect him, it's likely not going to work that easy. Because the attitude of the flesh is so much different than the attitude of the spirit. And the attitude of the flesh comes natural, comes normal. It's what we see displayed around us, so it's what we fit into unless we consciously and decisively determine that we are going to have the same attitude of Jesus. I think that's why Paul starts here. So he unfolds how this attitude is going to show itself in the choices of Jesus. And he starts in verse 6 with us needing to lay down our rights. We need to lay down our rights. Jesus could have clung to his divine rights and his privileges because they were his. He was God. But he did not. He could have leveraged them at any point for his benefit. But he did not. Now Satan knew that Jesus had this power available to him. That's why he tempted him in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. If you remember the story, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And he was tired. And he was hungry. And Satan came to him and said, hey, you've got this power. 
Why don't you use this power to make stones become bread? Your hunger will leave. Why don't you use this power to create a scenario where you would receive glory because you could throw yourself off of this building and the angels would rescue you at your command? Or he tried to offer him a position of prominence that really Jesus already had. He just stepped aside from and it certainly was not Satan's to offer to him. All because he knew that Jesus had this power. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 tells us that he was God. But Paul said, instead of leveraging his own power to his own advantage, some of the different translations say, the New Living Translation says, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, to hold on to. The contemporary English version says, he did not try to remain equal with God. He set that aside and he took on equal. The New International, we read, did not consider equality with God something to be used to its own advantage. And the New Revised Standard said, he did not think of equality with God as something to be exploited. Now, to be sure, Jesus was fully God, even though he was fully man on this earth. In the book of John, chapter 1, it begins, and it uses the, the word, word, to describe Jesus. And John writes, In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, the beginning of the beginning, was Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, meaning through Jesus, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. If you drop down to verse 14, John says, The Word, or Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. I like how Hebrews, in chapter 1, verse 3, describes Jesus in His relationship to God. He says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Jesus could have come come to his divine rights and to his privileges. But he laid down those rights and privileges for a purpose. And if you and I are going to reflect this attitude of Jesus, we have to be willing to lay down our rights as well. Preacher told a story from his um, childhood. It brings a bit of a sobering perspective. He said, many years ago, as a young boy, I attended a meeting in Toronto where some difficulty had come up between fellow Christians, and so they tried to get to come together to um, find unity. He wrote, my dear mother took me along, and I remember how horrified I was to see men that I had looked up to and been taught to respect, apparently so angry with. He said during the meeting, I remember one man stood up and he clenched his fists and he said, I will not put up with, I will put up with a good deal, but one thing I will not put up with, I will not allow you to put anything over on me. I will have my rights. He said an older gentleman in the, in the group was kind of hard of hearing, kind of leaned in and, and 
cupped his hand over his ear and said, what was that, brother? I didn't get that. The original man said, I will have my rights. The older gentleman said, but you didn't mean that, did you? Your rights? If you had your rights, if you had what you deserved, you wouldn't be in hell right now, wouldn't you? He said, aren't you forgetting that Jesus didn't come to get his rights? He came to get our wrongs. And he got them. And the preacher recalls that he said, I can still see the man standing there. And for a moment, it was like he was transfixed. And then all of a sudden, he said, I remember seeing tears come down his cheeks from his eyes. And he said, brothers, I've been all wrong. Handle this case as you see best. And he, he sat down and he put his hands in his face and he said he saw before the Lord. He said everything was settled within that group within three minutes. He concluded, when we bow before the Lord, he straightens things out. And we don't have to. People desire to dominate other people. We want to win over other people, especially those we disagree with. We see our value in our performance and not in our simple standing as a child of God. You know, for Jesus, being God became a platform, a platform for giving and not for getting, a platform for serving and not for being served. A platform for obedience, not one for dominance. Listen, as long as we live as if we are what we do, or we are what we have, or we are what other people think about us, aren't we bound to remain filled with judgment? And opinions and attitudes and evaluations and condemnations of others. And when you are in that rut, don't you often, often, often quietly feel a condemnation of yourself as well? We're being addicted to this need to put people and things in their place if we do that. But to the degree that we embrace the truth that our identity is not rooted in success, it's not rooted in power, it's not rooted in popularity, and it's not rooted in our being right. We can embrace that. We can let go of our need to win and our need to dominate and this need we seem to have to be the judge that only God can be. So Jesus shows us. Next. The next choice we can make as it relates to serving others. And that is the choice to empty ourselves out. It's in verse 7. Look at it. It says, rather, 
Jesus himself, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now when you read this, it may take you back to what Drew reminded us of last week. Remember Jesus' own words in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. By making himself nothing, by emptying himself out, as we read, Jesus submitted himself to limitations that he had never experienced before in heaven. On earth, Jesus, we read, became weary. The scripture tells us God is never weary. He became hungry. But God isn't hungry. He gave up heavenly glory. He gave up privileges. He gave up his omnipotence. And, and his omniscience, his, his omnipresence, and his divinity. But he never stopped being God. He simply limited himself by becoming a man. Think about it. He was excluded from just a basic room for his birth in Bethlehem. He was rejected. Not even invited into the hearts of God's own people. He didn't even own a simple place to lay his head while he was on this earth. He owned it all, but he took advantage of nothing. He wasn't like a, a Disney movie where a king dresses up to become a beggar. No, he became a lowly servant. Jesus, as God, became a human being so that he could live the human experience and ultimately so he could die as a human sacrifice. Now think about where we started in this passage. With an attitude or a mindset that we're being called to. You know, attitudes are a bit abstract. We know that as parents. Like, we know, we know something's not right. Um, we're just waiting for it to come out. Right? And then all of a sudden, those words <laughs> or that action, like, ah, yeah, there's the attitude I recognize. Right? So it's abstract until something happens that it becomes concrete. Well, Paul is saying have this attitude that's the same as Jesus. And when Jesus' attitude became concrete, he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. Stories told about a reception honoring English musician Sir Robert Mayer on his 100th birthday. It was a big event socially, so the elderly British socialite Lady Diana Cooper was found herself at this gathering having a conversation with a woman who seemed to know her, but she didn't recognize her. And she didn't recognize her because in her age she was losing her eyesight. She couldn't make out that face. But then eventually, what caught her eye were those magnificent diamonds. And she realized she was actually having a conversation with Queen Elizabeth. And so she curtsied and she stammered and said, Oh, ma'am, ma'am, I, I didn't recognize you, ma'am. I, I didn't recognize you without your crown. To which the Queen says, You know, tonight was so much Mr. Roberts' evening that I decided to leave it behind. 
Jesus left his crown behind so that he could become a servant to you and I. And Paul says, have that attitude in your life. And then he challenges us finally in verse 8 to just give it up. Just to give it up. It says, in being found in appearance as a man, that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Like as if going from God to man wasn't enough. As if going from being the creator to a humble servant was not enough. Jesus submitted himself to being killed on a cross. Now listen, Jesus didn't desire the cross. He didn't welcome the cross. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. That's what he felt like about the cross. Remember the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus is with his disciples. And he takes three of those closest to him, a little bit beyond the group, and he says these words in verses 38 and 39. He said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then he went a little further on his own, and he fell with his face to the ground. And Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away. He didn't want to go to the cross. He knew what lay ahead. But he ends up by saying, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then as the struggle goes on, and a little bit further in the passage we read in verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible, for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. That's the attitude Paul's calling us to. Now, crucifixion, I mean, that was one of the most torturous forms of human execution ever invented. The Greeks oftentimes would just take a single post or a pole and sometimes just impale victims. The Romans added the cross beam to it. The victim was tied or nailed to the beams. And then, as we know, those large spikes were driven through the wrists and through the feet. While the weight of the body hung from the wrists, the lungs were unable to inhale and exhale effectively. And so the man would have to push up on the nails through his feet simply to get enough weight off to gasp for breath. The hours on a cross were not spent hanging quietly. There were a constant struggle for the person being crucified just to get a breath. The ultimate cause of death, sometimes it was a loss of blood. Sometimes it was shock. Most often, it was suffocation. Because Jesus was God. No one could have taken his life from him. We realize that, don't we? He wasn't 
a victim of the Romans or the false accusations. He gave his life for us willingly. And he laid down his life on the cross for our sin. He had command still of all the armies of heaven. A little later there in Matthew chapter 26, when, when they came to arrest him, he says, you, Jesus said, do you not think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. He had all the power in the universe at his fingertips. And yet he restrained himself. Restraint. Now that's not a very popular topic in our society. That's not very politically correct. But Jesus exercised it. And it gives us a picture of the words that Paul gives to us as followers of Jesus. Do you hear the choice? Do you hear the power? Do you hear the witness of the words? You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That's what Paul is calling us to. That's what God is calling us to display to one another and to the world around us. So in your fight to be politically correct, to make sure that you took the right position on an issue, to make sure that you voted for the right candidate, to make sure that you stood on the right platform, surely we can understand, can't we, when we look through the eyes of Jesus? People who think differently than you and I can still be right with God. Truth is, I think a lot of people still don't understand that. And that may be why our ability to influence other people is often so limited. In some cases, in our society, in some cases, in the church, people are more concerned with their ability to change someone's opinion than they are to influence their eternity. And so we fall in line with other people and God calls us to be so much different than that. Every Meyer once said this. He said, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves one above the other and that the taller that we grew in Christian character easier it would be to reach those gifts. He said, I now find that God's gifts are on shelves one beneath the other. And we have to go down, always down, to get God's best gifts. Jesus taught us that the greatest among us is always going to be the one who serves. If you're able to be that servant, be that servant. If you struggle with that because of things in your life, we'd love to talk to you afterwards about getting those things in line with God's plan for your life. And if you find yourself simply incapable because God is not a part of your life, we'd love to introduce you to this Jesus today. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll be along the back. We'd love to talk to you after. Let's pray. Uh, Father, what you call us to is not easy.
that it is life, both for our lives and for the lives of those around us. Lord, we ask for power, vision, for, Lord, enough self-worth from you to simply become the people you've called us to be, to live the life you've called us to live, to serve other people as Jesus did.